Several years ago, NBC was doing a, uh, not really a documentary, you know how they kind of do some like new shows that, that take the take course over several weeks and they kind of give you episode one, episode two, episode three. They were, they were doing stuff on uh, Iraq and our soldiers there and they, they told this story about two Iraqi insurgents who had uh, been caught trying to set up explosives along the road. The explosives were meant to kill American soldiers and as they were laying those explosives, one of our helicopters showed up on the scene and took care of business. Uh, both of those guys, those Iraqi insurgents, were shot up. Both of them taken, even though they were injured, to a military camp where medical care could be delivered to them because they were still alive. And that, you know, obviously is something that's different in the way that Americans fight wars as opposed to maybe some other countries. Even though they were quote-unquote bad guys, there was, a, there was an expectation to try to save them, uh, save their lives. Well, one of those insurgents needed 30 pints of blood in order to survive. And the camp, the medical camp that he was taken to, was running low on blood. So a call went out to the soldiers for anybody that would donate. And this new story was telling this story because it, it's so uncharacteristic of what we would think. There was a guy named Brian Sura who was a battle-hardened vet who had been out there fighting back and forth with Iraqis, and he was the first person in line to give blood to save the life of someone who had committed his life to killing him. And when the reporter asked him, why are you doing this? He responded, because a life is a life. That's pretty powerful stuff when you think about it. To love somebody even though they're your enemy. You know, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people would probably agree with the statement, uh, the only good terrorist is a dead terrorist, right? I mean, that's, most of us would probably go, yeah, I agree with that. And, if, and some people that might not and go, no, I don't agree with that. If their life was actually in danger and they weren't sitting behind freedoms and the safety uh, of American way of life, their life was actually in danger, they would probably, most of them, be much more inclined to agree with that, situ that, that statement that a only good terrorist is a dead terrorist, but here's a deep question. Do you think God feels that way? Does God look at a, a terrorist from the Middle East and, and think, you know what, I hate them, I despise them, the only good thing about them would be if they're dead? Now, one of the first passages of Scripture we've, we've ever read, I mean, people who are not even believers go to football games and hold up signs with what verse? John 3.16, right? John 3.16 says this, For God so loved, what? The world, not, not America. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So do you believe, do you believe that God loves the whole world? I mean, we have, because of that verse and because of the way we grew up, we, we have to like nod our heads, right? We're not going to look at that and go, eh, well, maybe not. We, we would go, oh, yeah, I, I believe that, that, that God loves the whole world. But here would be, here's kind of the follow-up. If we are children of God and we are followers of Jesus, do we love the world like God loves the world? See, most of us, quite honestly, don't even spend much time thinking about the world, right? Just a rhetorical question, because I don't want you to be embarrassed. Like, when was the last time you thought about or prayed about 
the salvation of a group of people from another country. Right? That's why it's rhetorical, because we would all like hang our heads. And like... we, we don't even think about that. We're so caught up in what's happening, and when I say in our world, I mean not even in the United States, even though that is much more important to us or on our mind than what's happening in, in Peru or what's happening in the Philippines, or, or what's happening in South Africa. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about that because we're trying to pay bills and raise kids, right? I mean, that, that's understandable. When we went to Poland several years ago, we had this cool experience to be able to go into some of the schools with some Polish teenagers and go into their class and do English and Polish talking. Uh, the Poles learn, learn English in their schools. And uh, I was in, there's probably five or six of our students in with a classroom of about 20 Polish people. And that we were allowed to talk about faith and anything as long as we were speaking in English. So it was a great, really cool experience. And some really funny things happened along the way. We were sitting in that uh, classroom and we asked the Polish kids, what do, what do Polish people think about Americans? And here, here were some of the things they said. Or I think we asked Texans first, what do you think about Texans? And they said, uh, you ride horses to school and everyone has a gun. We said, well, we don't ride horses. Um, <laughs> and the funny thing was, we, we had an 18-year-old girl in the group with us who actually her, her grandparents have, had bought her a gun before. And she's sitting at the front of the table with all these students. And she's got her bag up on the table with her iPad inside. I think I've told this story before. And they, she said, they said, everybody has guns. And the students were like, no, we don't have guns. And this girl goes, well, I mean, I do. Uh, my grandparents got me one. Do you want to see it? And she opens up her bag to reach for the iPad, and I'm in the back of the classroom, and all the Polish kids are like scooting their chairs back. Like, the Americans brought a gun with them. We asked, what do you think about Americans? And here they said, this is what they said, uh, lazy, fat, and rich. I went, man, y'all, you're, yeah, you pretty much nailed it. Like, and then as they're talking, this is just kids talking. I'm in the back. I'm not saying anything. Then one of the Polish kids goes, what do Americans think about Poland? And so I jumped in real quick because I was like, this is about to go sideways really quick because I know what the answer is going to be. And I said, let, I said, let me answer it for you, but let me explain it before the answer looks really bad. And I said, we don't. I said, that sounds really bad and we don't mean it to be. But, but I said, you have to understand when you live in Poland, when, when you go eight hours any direction, you can go through two or three different countries with two or three different governments and, and cultures. When you live where we live, you can drive eight hours in almost any direction and still be in Texas, like just about. And I said, so our news isn't world news so much. We, we do have news about Mexico because it's a, our border. Uh, we would have news about Oklahoma if there was anything newsworthy in Oklahoma. Uh, <laughs> we have some national news. But I said, really, we, we just don't, when we say we don't think about you, don't take that the wrong way. It's just different culture, and, and they got that. But that's kind of where we're at, right? I mean, if I said, tell me everything you know about what's going on you know, in Poland right now, you would go, oh, is, is it still a country? Uh, you know, we, we, don't think, we don't think about the world, but God does. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus and so if God loves every tribe and tongue, and that's the name of this series, if God loves every tribe and, and tongue, then so should I. I should if I'm following Christ, if I'm a child of God. And that isn't 
just a New Testament concept of John 3.16. Actually, this concept of God's heart for the world goes all throughout the Scripture. I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to go to the very beginning, and we're going to see that it's rooted in the Jewish people. Here's one of the problems. We read the Old Testament, and we read about the Jews, God's people, and and we tend to have this Western idea of dominance and power, and we read the Old Testament stories of, of, of God's people, the Jews, wiping out some tribes around them and things like that. And we get this mistaken idea that God was an exclusive God for the Jews. That God came, and, and we get that because God, and we're going to see this in a second, makes a covenant with the Jews. He says, if, if you, I will be your God and, and you will be my people and we'll covenant together. And we read that concept all throughout the Old Testament, but we miss the very heart of what God's plan was, and we can see it in Genesis 17 when this covenant begins to form. So look at Genesis chapter 17. Let me flip over to it. Verse 1. If you Google who's the father of the Jews, Abraham will come up. I literally did it. Most Christians will tell you, if you say, hey, who is the father of the Jewish people? Abraham. Because Abraham is the person who begins the covenant with God, and Abraham is the person who ends up having all the Jewish descendants come from him. But look in chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant was, is with you, and you shall be the father of what? A multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. We miss that. Because Abraham, father of the Jews. But God said when he makes this covenant with Abraham, he says you're no longer going to be Abram, but Abraham, because you're not just going to be the father of the Jews of my people. You're going to be the father of many nations. Because this plan that God has for the Jews was not to come in and be the Jewish exclusive God. His plan was to be God of the world because he is God of the world, because he created it all. The idea was, though, I will take this group of people, the Jews, and I'll covenant with them. And the rest of the world will see what it looks like to have a relationship with humans and God himself. And as all of the other peoples that I love, because God so loved the world, as they see how my blessings are poured out upon the Jewish people, as they see what it looks like to have God in your corner, as all of these other nations see what it means to have a personal and intimate relationship with the creator of the universe, they'll all come running. The problem is, just like the problem is for the church today, the people didn't do a real good job on their end of the covenant, right? I mean, same is true today. You've got friends that if you said, hey, come to church with me. Hey, I want to tell you about who Jesus is. I, would you consider giving your life to Christ? Many of them are going, no, I'm not interested. I don't believe in God. And, and, and that's not on 
God because he's never changed. If you got down and drilled down to why, it's because of us. If we lived out what the Bible taught us, right? If we, if we loved our neighbors like Jesus loved us, if we had an axe church kind of picture where, where we would sell everything we have for each other, where there was unity, where there was harmony, where there was peace, where, where, where we gave of everything we had to, to uh, love our brothers well, to sacrifice, there'd be a lot more people flocking to God. I want to be a part of that. But we've stunk it up. And the Jews stunk it up. And that's part of the problem of, of why world evangelism hasn't happened. It wasn't because God's changed, because we haven't done our part of the covenant very well. But the very beginning, in Genesis 17, when God starts the Jewish people, he says to Abraham, hey, the plan is not just for you, but you're going to be the father of many nations. Other people are going to get involved. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's not read devotionally very often. Matthew chapter 1 starts with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew's a Jew, he's grown up Jewish, and he's writing this gospel, this story, to Jewish people so they can see that Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew is written different than Mark, Luke, or John is because of the audience in which it's written. So Matthew opens with a genealogy. He opens with the story of where Jesus came from, and you can see the key figures in the very first parts of it. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, very important to the Jews, and the son of Abraham, the father of the Jews. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. First half of the genealogy, and then we won't read the second half. He goes from David down to Jesus. But here's what's interesting, because this is written by a Jew for Jews, and in this genealogy, I want you to go back and look because this is a little bit more scholarly, again, not devotionally. But look at chapter 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, you realize that nowhere else in that genealogy does it say by who? The, the wife is not pointed out. But it's pointed out here by Rahab. What do we know of Rahab? She's not a Jew. Well, she became a Jew. So we would say she, she was not born a Jew, but became a part of the faith, became a part of the people of God, and not just a part of the people of God, but a part of the lineage of David and Jesus. And he goes on, says, by, of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, oh, there's another by, by Ruth. What do we know about Ruth? Not a Jew, not originally, becomes a Jew. And so we even see in this genealogy of Jesus, as, as Matthew's unpacking it, there's this, this picture in here of what Father Abraham was supposed to be. You, you remember, you'd seen that song when you were a kid? Father Abraham had many sons, and you did the arms. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. No, we're not Jewish. Well, I mean, my last name is Levi, so I may be in, but y'all aren't. Um, <laughs> That, that I am one of them, 
And so are you. It's this idea that Abraham is not just the father of the Jews, but the father of God's people. And it was in the genealogy. So as we, as we walk through Genesis, we go, hey, man, from the very beginning, check God's heart for the world, we see as he starts his people. And then in the genealogy, we see it's important. Now go over to Luke chapter 24. See what Jesus has to say about this subject. I think that would be important. Luke chapter 24. I'll give you a second because I hear Bibles flipping there and I would love for you to read along with me. Luke chapter 24, Luke is recording the resurrection. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. He appears to his disciples and he's about to ascend back into heaven. And in verse 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So, they would have expected the Messiah has come for the Jews. They would have expected for Jerusalem. And Jesus says, hey, it's going to start here because this is where we're at. But you're going to preach repentance and forgiveness, the good news of salvation to all nations. Old Testament, check. Genealogy of Jesus, the Jews understood, check. The words of Jesus himself, check. Now, first church I ever served, a little small country church, I mean, high attendance Sunday, we were, we, we were aiming for 100 people on high attendance Sunday. Uh, Sydney Baptist Church. In fact, I made the, made the mistake one time of calling it First Baptist Church, Sydney, and I was corrected. No, we are Sydney Baptist Church. There was only one. There's only three churches, the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Church of Christ. And at one point, they took the Methodist Church and just raised it and turned it to a lot, and there were two left. I mean, just little small town, you went to one of those two. Our, our pastor, first one I served under, was, man, probably in his 80s, saint of a man. His sermons every Sunday morning, I mean, like, like he had bookmarks, 15, 20 in his Bible, and we would just, I mean, we, we were all over the place. Because he'd go this verse or that verse or this verse or that verse. And I remember thinking, I mean, I really like to just have one verse, kind of one passage and lean in on it. Um, I do prefer that. But I'm having you flip this morning. We're going to flip to a couple more because I want us to see the big picture. Okay? So if you're like me and you're like, why are we flipping so much? It's because we're not diving deep. We're getting a, 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 a bird's eye view of everything. So we've got the Old Testament. We've got the genealogy. We've got Jesus. So let's go over to Acts chapter 13. Let's see what the early church has to say. And we'll look at the life of Paul. Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. You know who the Gentiles are? Gentiles are anybody that's not a Jew. So Paul is saying, I'm, we're not, Jews are not just God's people. God has called us to be a light, to be a city on a hill, as Jesus would say, to the Gentiles, to everyone that's not a Jew. I've made you a light for the world, basically, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And when the Gentiles, the non-Jews, heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And many, as we're appointed to eternity, eternal life, believed. Old Testament, Jesus, Paul says, hey, this gospel is for the world. So last one. Okay, one more, chat, one more passage. Let's go to the end. Revelation chapter 14. We start in Genesis. <clears throat> we'll go over to Revelation 14. Not only is it the bookend of the story, but we also have this perspective of the Apostle John who sees this vision of heaven, and he has this vision of, of Jesus, and he, and he records it for us in, in Revelation chapter 14. And look what he saw in verse 6. Then I saw another angel. So in the spiritual world, this isn't just humans. This is now angels, the spiritual realm. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, with a forever good news to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. Did you get that? This eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. That's what the angel said. So from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God's plan was for salvation, was for the gospel, the eternal gospel, the good news, to go to everybody. Over and over, we, we, there's tons of other verses that call us to the ends of the earth, to cause us to take the gospel to the rest of the world. But the struggle is when we live in Georgetown, Texas, or Round Rock, Texas, or wherever you, wherever you live here, I mean, we, we live in a comfortable place. And we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the world. But if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be a disciple and we're going to do what he says, and if we're going to model our lives to look like his and move in that sanctification process to be more like Jesus, if we want to have the heart in us that God has, then we have to have a heart for the world because God loves the world. Now, we're going to talk over the next couple of weeks this week and then two more. We're going to talk about missions. It's more than just missions. But we are going to talk about missions and what we've been called to. And we're going to try to figure out how we engage with God's heart for the world with where you are. Because here's quite honest what may be true for some of you. Some of you may not be able to go on a mission trip. You might have two weeks vacation and your job and that's all you've got. And it's, and it's booked for a family vacation in the summer. And it's booked to go see the grandparents' over the holidays, and, that, and, and you wish you had more vacation, but that's all you've got, and when we go, hey, we got a trip going here, a trip going there, you go, man, I just, man, I need to see my parents. I don't see them that often, and I want to invest in my family, because you keep telling us families are good. I'd affirm that. You may not be able to get on a plane and go. Some of you might have vacation. You might be self-employed. You can take off whenever you want, but you go, man, I'm in, and you go, I'm going to go on that mission trip, and they go, okay, the, the plane ticket's $2,100. And you go, okay, well, I'm out. And I don't have $2,100. So financially, you may not be able to go and do in some of the things that you hear people talk about going and doing, but there are ways that we can connect our hearts to God so that we can have a heart for the nations. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the course of the next couple of weeks and what we want you to talk with your kids about. But let me tell you this, just quite honestly, your children, your teenagers, 
will never have God's heart for the nation unless they see your heart like God's. I mean, outside of God doing a miracle, and he might, the Lord might come in and capture their heart for the nations. That, that happens. But the easiest way for your kids to connect with God's heart is to see their parents whose heart are connected to God's heart. Who see their parents praying for people groups. Who hear their parents talking about and engaging what God is doing in other places around the world. And celebrating victories. When they start to hear that, it starts to change things. I'm not going to tell kids this story because it doesn't really affect them, but tell you guys, for us, one of our goals as, as parents was to have our teenagers have a heart for the nations. Our, well, they were children at the time. Because I wanted them to grow up into adults. They would go, you know what? I know that God loves all the people, and I want, I want to love them well. So one of the things that we did in kind of our journey, you'll hear more about this over the next couple of years as we start unveiling some, some family discipleship plans that's coming to help you disciple your kids even, even better, was we made a decision because we want our kids to have a heart for the world. When they were five years old, we adopted a Compassion International World Vision kid. That was the same age as our daughter. So uh, Emerson has a little girl who's eight. Rayleigh has a little girl who's 12. And we got girls, so they would write back and forth and, so that they would dialogue with them. And like once every seven years, my kids actually write a letter to those girls. Um, and every now and then I go, hey, it's their birthday. Do you want to do something? And they go, no, not really. Uh, and so, but we're leaning into those teaching moments to go, but you need to. We're, we're, these are our people that we're investing our lives in. But we do pray for them on a regular basis. Ariani in the Dominican Republic, Marlies in Peru. And you know why they're in the Dominican Republic in Peru? Because the goal was, when my kids become freshmen in high school, we're going to go, and they're going to meet Ariani in the Dominican Republic, and Emerson's going to go beat Marlies in Peru, and quite honestly, as a part of a plan, an intentional plan of discipleship to help create a heart for the world for my kids, as I was looking at World Vision kids, this is, y'all probably laugh at this, but this is, just, this is real life. I'm looking, knowing this is the plan. And here's three girls that have the same birthday as Emerson. And one's in Peru, and one's in Kenya, and one's in Thailand. And I'm like, I'm going to adopt one of them. But because I know I'm going when they're a freshman, I was on Expedia finding out how much it costs to fly to Peru, how much to fly to Kenya, and how much to fly to Thailand. And Peru was the winner, and so was Mari Lee's at that point. This is intentional plan, though, because what, I, what I'm praying for is that as, as my kids pray for these girls over time and we get to step into their world and leave Georgetown and see this place where Mari Lees lives in Peru and Ariana in Dominican Republic, the Holy Spirit's going to capture my kid's heart and go, you know what, I've made a difference. This girl who doesn't need, I have to have a translator to speak with knows Jesus because our family invested in them. And their life and eternity will be forever changed. And I, I pray that my kids will look around and they'll look back at what they have at home and they'll go, you know what? I want to make a difference in the world because God loves these people. But our kids won't get it unless we get it. And that's why this process of discipleship for us as adults, not as parents, is so important. So let me give you some things to think about, maybe some practical to-dos. One is this. We've got to change the way we see people whose tribe looks different and whose tongue sounds different than ours does. And that doesn't have to be in another country. That could be right here. God's called us to love people who are different than us. And in reality, what happens, and it's, it's understandable, 
we move toward homogenous groups. We tend to hang out with people that look like us and talk like us and believe the same things we believe. And we, try to, we tend to move to neighborhoods or go to churches with, where people we feel very similar. And here's the reason why. Because when, we're, when we are presented or confronted with a person of another culture, oftentimes, for sure, another language, sometimes just a different color of skin, all of a sudden our ignorance rises up because we go, I don't, I don't know the culture. I don't know how you were raised. I know how I was raised. And, and I don't want to say something offensive. I don't want to do something dumb. And so we tend to run away from people who are different than us and congregate with people that we feel comfortable with because they talk like us, think like us, do what we do. But if God truly loves the world, and we're going to have a heart for God, then we've got to love Asian people, Hispanic people, legal or illegal. We have to love African American people, Caucasian people, Democrats and Republicans, and heterosexual and homosexual, Buddhists, Satanists, people that look different than you. Because God does. And you know what? It's really easy really easy to say we do. Very different, though, when actions define love. Let me just put this out there. And I, I, am, I grew up in a multicultural world, being a military kid. But even that, I, I, don't, I can't fully understand what it's like to live in another culture. Because I wasn't. Raised that way, born middle class Caucasian. How you respond to Nike and Colin Kaepernick will say a lot about what you believe about God's heart for the world. Just will. Because here, here's a spoiler alert God is passionately an infatuation love. Colin Kaepernick. God loves him more than you love your own kids. And if I'm a follower of Christ and I'm going to have a heart for the world, my world can't just be South Africa and the Philippines and Germany. It has to be the people that I live with every day. And just because I'm ignorant and don't understand what they've lived and experienced doesn't mean that I'm allowed to act unlovingly. And even if I do disagree with what someone says or believes, I'm still called to love. I, I would adamantly disagree with a Satanist. I would. I think theologically, they're a little off. I mean, they, they believe the devil exists, Check. I mean, I give them that. Everything else. But I have to love them. Here's the crazy thing. You could have a Satanist move in next door to you and, and on one side, and you might be Republican or Democrat. You could have the other person living on the other side of you. And, and you'll love the Satanist more than you will the Democrat. And some of you are thinking right now, well, in my mind, they're one and the same. You know, and, and if you think that, that's the whole point. Right? 
You don't have to agree. But we have to love because God loves the world. And so there's a heart check for us. And you, you'll, you'll never love somebody from another country that's kidnapping and selling people and trafficking. You'll never love them. If you can't figure this out, have the heart of God. And yet God does. So, we can say a lot of things. I want you to know this, though. Google doesn't really lie. 2015, San Bernardino shooting happened. And as the name came about the shooter, it had a Muslim-sounding name. Google tells us a lot about our culture. The Muslim-sounding name was mentioned on the air, and that day, Google searches for kill Muslims spiked. Now, if we said... You want to kill a Muslim? Nope. God so loves the world, but Google doesn't lie. Here's an interesting thing. The N-word was searched 7 million times on Google last year. Jokes about African Americans were searched 17 times more than any other ethnicity. The N-word was searched on Google, spiked during Katrina, during Obama's first election. And every year it spikes 30% on Martin Luther King Day. We can say we love people. And we can pretend, but love is shown in our actions. And I'm not suggesting you run out and buy Nikes. But I would suggest that for some people that have grabbed onto, I'm going to boycott Nike because they've used Colin Kaepernick as an advertising piece, would be unbiblical at best, foolish at most. Also, because, by the way, Nike's in it to make money. Just FYI, too. That's the bottom line from that. We've got to figure out how to love people who look different and sound different than we do. Here's the second thing. We've also got to pay attention to what God's doing in the world. We, we talked about earlier, we're ignorant. We don't know what's going on. And you, you can't know everything that's going on in the world. I mean, it's a big place, right? Even with the internet and the ability to travel, we, we can't know it all. We, we could probably list countries, and I listed countries that exist, and many of us are going, I've never even heard of that country before. We can't know it all. But you, you can know a missionary your family can adopt a missionary to start praying for them, knowing what's going on in their world on another part of the globe. You, you could be prayer support for that man or woman or couple who left the comfortability of home to take the gospel when you or I couldn't or weren't called to do that to be a, a part of what they're doing and supporting them. You can use resource, resources like Operation World, um, what's the other one, One Open Door USA, it gives you ways to pray for people across the world. In my prayer app, I've got both of those logged in. Yesterday, I prayed for Abdul in Cameroon. I'll never meet Abdul this side of heaven, but spend some time praying for Abdul, whose family's left him and his wife has left him because he's following Jesus Christ. And I prayed for the men and women that he's begun to disciple in, in the country of Cameroon. I know what continent, I know Cameroon's in Africa, but I, I couldn't point on a map to where it's at. That I can engage and pray 
And trust the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. But to be a part. In the early 1900s, there was a young man named William Borden. Went to private school. School that was known for placing kids in Ivy League schools. And he was no exception. Graduated and was headed off to Yale. And his parents, because they were wealthy and because they wanted to give their son experience, before he started his college education at Yale, they sent him on an around-the-world trip. It was early 1900s, so you can imagine the expense and time that took. And as the young man was traveling the world, God began to capture his heart for the world. And he came home and he told his parents, he said, God has called me to missions. I've seen some things that I can never unsee again. And I need to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to these people that I've seen. And he sensed God calling him to China. He stayed at Yale, finished his degree, and started to head towards China. And he made it as far as Egypt before he got spinal meningitis and died in Egypt at the age of 25. Most people would say his life was a waste, but William Borden's life inspired tons of young college students to have a heart for the world. And while he never made it to China, hundreds of others did. It was interesting. He had notes written in his Bible. And when his father was trying to convince him not to, um, not to go, not to go overseas, he'd written some notes in his Bible and, and along those lines, he wrote the words, no reserves. And then along his college year at Yale, where he started a Bible study because he wasn't just waiting to go to the world, he was serving the world that he's at, where three quarters of his classmates came to his Bible study. As he wrote notes in his Bible about that, he wrote the words, no retreat. And when they took his Bible and his personals, when he lived from Egypt, when he died, the last things that he wrote inside his Bible, according to the story, was no regrets. You don't have regrets when you have the heart of God for the world. We have some time, 15, 20 minutes in the yap. It will still say Job. It will say at the bottom, I added it, it will say parents. And I have today's date, September 16th. If, if you're just trying to get it on this Wi-Fi, you'll have to turn your Wi-Fi off because I don't think you can get it in here. You'll have to use the uh, cell signal 